driveway makes your vehicle look brand new again. Classic cars, bikes, boats, RVs, dump trucks, hot rods, tractors, transport trucks. We can even make your minivan look like the day you drove it off the lot. Did you spill too much coffee on your seat? Did Junior decide he couldn't wait till he got home? And yuck, maybe you're just long overdue for that meticulous cleaning. Maybe you want to sell the old beast. Smartest thing you can do is make it look brand new again. Timos 2000, 613-327-8498, 613-327-8498, or go to timos2000.com. Okay, welcome to the Nick at Night Show, folks. We had a little glitch, so we're just going to restart. I want to welcome to the show. The numbers are 343-700-4390-844-562-4766. And you can send me a note at nick at latenightcouncil.com. That's 343-700-4390-844-562-4766 and nick at latenightcouncil.com. All right, it seems that we have, uh, yes, we're getting the proper responses from my Facebook page, which means we're actually on the air. It's amazing the difference one little button will make. Now, uh, on the show this evening, I've got a couple of things going on. In the second hour, we're going to be going over some of the stuff that's been going on. Uh, we haven't had a, much of a chance to keep track of it lately with the the, the Trump election and, and uh, you know, what's going on here in the province of Ontario. But there's been a, an uptick in terrorist attacks. Did you know we had one in Vancouver? Did you know there was one in Austria? Did you, you must know, if you don't know, you should have heard by now, that there was one in Ankara where the uh, Soviet ambassador was gunned down. Um, and there's all kinds of things to go over there. Obviously, there was the one in Berlin. So there's been a whole spat of it that, for the most part, most people haven't heard of because we've been so focused on things closer to home. So in the second hour, we'll deal with that. In the first hour, if you think back a little bit, you'll remember the, the, the whole hullabaloo that went, took, that, how do I put this, kind of exploded in Carlton, in the riding of Carlton, when uh, some people tried to become the candidates for the PC party in Ontario, one being uh, Jay Tysick. Now, if you remember at the time, I had Jay in. We talked about what was going on. And since then, there was you've noticed there's probably been, I don't know, five or six different stories on that topic in the press over the last six weeks or so. And it kind of got quiet until today. Now, I've asked Jay to join us in the studio to bring us up to speed on what's going on. So welcome, Jay. Glad you could make it tonight. Thanks, Nick. Glad to be here. Now, before we get into what the latest is, I want to spend a few moments setting the table, refresh people's memory about how we got here in the first place. Tell us, you know, the genesis of, of the story so that for anybody who was living on Mars at the time and wasn't paying attention, they might not know. So go ahead and, and bring us up to speed from that point. Sure. So um, 
there was a, a nomination in the Carlton riding for the PC candidate, and um, there was at the time. Uh, I guess this started a while back because uh, it's a new riding. It's a split riding. Lisa McLeod used to be the representative for Nepean Carlton before her. It was John Baird. Um, Lisa had chosen she was going to run in the riding of Nepean, which is also a new riding. They and leaving Carlton empty. So there was four candidates at that point uh, that had signed up. Doug Thompson, mm-hmm. Goldie Gamari, Brandon Purcell, and uh, Mike Nowak. And, you know, I, I've known Doug for a long time from back at City Hall. I thought he was great. I said, you know, good, we're going to have some good representation. So I got on his campaign quickly, was helping him out. He started to notice um, shenanigans kind of going on with uh, date changes and lack of notification and stuff like that. He, in his own words, I mean, he said that uh, he could tell that kind of the fix was in. So he he just chose at that point in his career, he didn't need that kind of stuff, so he stepped out. Personally, I felt what was left wouldn't be strong representation. So I wanted to just make sure that that riding was well represented. I mean, it's the riding I grew up. I've got lots of 30-year-old friendships there, and I was concerned. So I threw my name in the hat, and almost immediately they changed the date. It was supposed to be in the new year that the uh, nomination meeting would be so held. So it wouldn't even have, it would not have even happened yet. Right. And I, I, I threw my name in around, I think it was October 9th. Right. And um, the at the time, like I said, it was supposed to be after January 1st, 2017. Well, within a few days of me doing that, they moved it and set it for November, sometime between mid to end November. Well, I mean, I, I got to work really hard selling memberships and uh, I... I you know, as you do on an election, you keep track of your numbers and you get a sense of the total membership. And at that point, I'd pegged it at about, like, getting near to about 800, and I had about 400 votes that were uh, confirmed for me. So it was looking pretty positive going in. They moved it again, cutting it off to the the 5th. Um, and then after they had set that and the nomin- like the date uh, for membership sales had closed they decided to do their vetting at the provincial level. Uh, I I went through the interview, and I'd passed the first round of interviews at the riding association level. And uh, the next day after the provincial interview, I was sent a one-line email just said, you won't be allowed to run. No explanation. So I was a little upset. (laughs) And I was mostly upset at the undermining of democratic principles. Like, really, this is the issue here. I mean, the people weren't given the opportunity to choose the person they wanted. You know, there was a preferred candidate who was favored and was given a lot of assistance in making sure that they claim that riding. So I spoke out about it quite a bit. And I think uh, everyone should when they see something wrong happen. You know, uh, there was a lot of people who were upset. And because I was speaking out, uh, other people from around the province started to reach out to me saying, you know, we've got similar experiences in our riding association. Same kind of things going on. This is not an isolated incident. This is a province-wide problem. Mm-hmm. So they they were sending me the story saying, we don't want to speak out, but can you tell our story? So I started telling their stories as well. Well, just today, um, well, actually last night, uh, I received a letter from the candidate uh, for Carleton basically suing me for one of the stories, well, threatening to sue. Threatening, threatening so, if, if threatening I, a lawsuit. Yeah, yeah. Let, yeah. Me, let me correct. Uh, she, she is not suing me. But she said that if I don't print a retraction and apology for an article that I commented on two months ago, almost, then I would be open to sue. And the funny thing is it also said, even if I do apologize and print a retraction, she may still sue. <laughs> Which, <laughs> as far as I so know, it's one or lot. the other. It's one or the other. <laughs> so there's a real incentive to apologize, yeah, right? right? Well, let's see. If I apologize, you, you might not sue me. But if I apologize, you might sue me anyway. Yeah. 
So, but you know, the reality is, oh I, I, it's, it's insane because I've been watching this process and I've been kind of keeping my comments. I haven't spoken about her really at all since the nomination meeting. I've been talking about what Patrick's doing provincially. So this came out of the blue, like it was almost ridiculous. I mean, she she was given the opportunity by that reporter in the article she's complaining about, which, uh, by the way, is a fantastic piece of journalism, and I hope it's on your website, and I suggest everyone go read it. Cause, I think it is. Yeah, yeah. No, it's it's wonderfully insightful and well-written. Um, I enjoyed it. But anyway, so... <laughs> <laughs> no kidding. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> anyway, so um, I had focused on Patrick almost exclusively, and the odd thing was, this is such an old story, I, I was kind of shocked to see that that was the reason for this letter. I mean, and I hadn't spoken about her at all or to her really um, since. So I, I was I was a little shocked. And I remember in that article, she was given the opportunity to comment and she said she didn't want to comment on the record. So how do you now say that it's defamation? I mean, if, if you disagreed with anything that was said, you were given the opportunity to speak. And then how two months later do you suddenly become offended? I'm so sorry. I'm... I don't know if the timing has to do with like, wanting to ruin my Christmas for my family or what, but it just seems so weird that it would come two months later. All right, hold it there. Yeah. We'll take a break. Take a break. <laughs> and we'll be right back with more on the Nick at Night Show. <laughs> come on, there. For 17 years, I've been taking my cars to Irwin's Automotion. 17 years ago, Irwin was renting space on the corner of Bank and Heron. His encyclopedic knowledge of all things mechanical and his no-bull honesty has resulted in his second move. He now operates a huge facility on Cleopatra, eight bays and an expert staff that operate all in the same wavelength. Honesty, integrity, try to save the customers some money and headaches, but fix it right the first time. Irwin's Automotion, 34, Cleopatra. Tell them council sent you. That'll make them smile.
Okay. Thanks for staying with us, folks. My guest in studio for the next 45 minutes or so is uh, Jay Tysick. He was a uh, candidate or was trying to become a candidate for the Carlton riding uh, for the provincial uh, conservatives. And as he was just telling us, things have been a bit of a roller coaster ride for a lot of different people, not just him. So, so you get a letter from her lawyer, mm-hmm. and I've read the letter. And I must admit, the first time I read it, I was laughing harder than I was before we just took the break. But I don't want to steal your thunder. So when you get this letter, what's the first thing that goes through your mind? Well, I, truthfully, I was reminded uh, of a quote by Patrick Brown uh, a couple of years or a little while ago when uh, Kathleen Wynne was suing um, Tim Hudak and Lisa McLeod. Patrick made the comment that uh, any politician who uh, would sue is not fit to be a politician. <laughs> That's what I thought. Um, I think I remember him saying that. Yeah. So anyway, no, my first thought was just the silliness. Like, I mean, we, we've got a situation where the party, it, it seems, is undermining democratic principles, that of a free vote and an open vote, allowing the members to choose their representations for like their representation for themselves. And then you add to that, you've got this candidate who is trying to, I guess, bully people into silence because she doesn't like their opinions. I mean, the truth is, I commented on these things that were out there. I didn't put them out there, you know, in the article. Those things are there. She wrote them. She said them. They're there for all to see. And I commented on them. If, if there's defamation in that material... The defamation came from her for writing it, not me for bringing it to light. <laughs> okay, so let's let's play devil's advocate here for a mm-hmm. minute, or let's let's talk about theoretically at least, uh, and then I'll ask you, what you about whether or not you think it'll actually happen. Let's say, for the sake of this discussion, that um, I, I have no reason to believe you're going to apologize. Uh, you know, it just it just doesn't seem to sit. I just don't see that happening. So you you don't apologize. Should she decide to follow through on her threat? Mm. What do you? How do you see this unfolding? Truthfully, I cannot see that happening. I really don't. And you're right. I'm not going to apologize because I will not apologize for the truth, and I will not retract for a bully. You know what I mean? But. And this is bullying tactics, trying to silence political opposition. That is not democratic. And I'm supporting democracy on this one. That's it. But if she does pursue, I mean, it's just I've seen cases where politicians have tried to sue other politicians before and they get laughed out of court because it's like this is just politics. I mean, trying to expose lack of qualifications in your opponent is called campaigning. That's what you do. Like, it's not grounds to sue. And on top of that... I mean, I've got the truth defense. Like, I mean, this is stuff she put out. And then thirdly, I mean, there's there's fair comment. She's a politician, you know, and this is the game she chose to be in. You can't have it both ways. You can't say, I want to make myself a public figure, and then I don't want anything about me public. That's just not how this world works. Yeah, you that's, know? <laughs> that's a little like, it's unrealistic. A nice thought, but the fact is, you become a candidate, you open yourself up to criticism. That's life. It's kind of like being a talk show host. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but I can't imagine you get criticized often. Oh, God, no. <laughs> Me criticized? Oh, never. Never. Well, maybe once. Anyway, so, okay, so you say it'll never happen. What makes you say that? Well, again, I mean, I can't say it'll never happen. I have no idea. The chances I mean, of it happening are 
The chances small. of it ever going to court are minimal because just I can't imagine a judge taking this. There, there's nothing in it where I've defamed her. I've simply talked about what was already out there. You know what I mean? Mm. So if it does, though, I mean, one of the things, and this is why I don't even, I can't imagine that the party is aware that she did this. I think this was uh, kind of something she took upon herself, and I, I believe they're going to be upset because, I mean, I would be required to defend myself, obviously, mm. and obviously. my defense would be that this is true. And one of the things says that, you know, there was tampering with the nomination. Well, guess what? In order to prove that, my lawyers would need to subpoena for discoveries uh, everybody involved, including the riding association board, the the provincial board, the the leader's office. They would be requesting emails, tra- uh, phone transcripts, phone records. I can't imagine the party is going to expose themselves in this way over this issue. I mean, I may be wrong, but it just seems odd. <laughs> <laughs> as much fun as it would be. Well, I mean, from your perspective, uh, I imagine my lawyers would find it fun. I don't know. <laughs> I, I think I'd be vindicated. I think uh, what I'm saying would be shown to have. So what? What? I, I, look, you can't read somebody else's mind, and I'm not. I'm and I'm. I'm tempted to ask you what makes you think. Why do you think she's doing this? But you can't. That, that's almost an unfair question because you can't. How do you never, know? I could never. But you got to scratch your head and ask yourself that question, like. Where does she? What does she hope to gain? This woman is a lawyer, mm. and you would think she would know all this about disclosure. She would know all this about discovery. That she would know that there's a chance Patrick Brown would have to ask, answer some questions that he doesn't want to. An- never mind answer. He doesn't want asked. Mm. So when you look at the whole thing, uh, I think you can draw some conclusions. One is what it does to the, to the credibility of the Progressive Conservative Party in Ontario. Um, I, I can't see this as being anything but negative. I just can't understand. It's so undemocratic. I mean, you've got an election. You you were criticized during the election. That's democracy, freedom of speech. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, that I I think they are just fundamentally disdainful of the tenets of democracy. <laughs> the tenets of democracy. That's what it looks like. I mean, her goal. If I had to speculate, and again, this would only be speculation, I, I have no – she just assumed that the letter would frighten me and that I would go into silence and she could get rid of some stuff she doesn't want seen because she's not arguing the validity. She's saying that it being printed defamed her. Okay, and that makes a lot of sense except that it doesn't Yeah, because everything – like what I'll do is uh, is I'll post the letter – Hmm. Uh, that you got from the lawyer on Facebook, and people can read it for themselves, and then they can ask themselves, "Well, okay, so who was did did she she did detract uh, try to eliminate things from from uh, Facebook and from Twitter accounts? She did say that Stephen Harper was an embarrassment. She did praise Ignatieff. Where is there the defamation that Jay put out? And they can draw their own conclusions because when you think about this. If, if you're going to go after somebody from a legal point of view, the very first thing you have to consider is, can I win? And if you can win, what's the benefit? You know, it does the cost of winning outweigh just letting it slide? I think this is a simple bully tactic. I think she's trying to silence political opposition. I think she doesn't want certain things that she's done to come out, and she thought that this would be an easy way to do it. That's what I think, but I don't know. Hmm. Interesting. Ooh, <laughs> how the plot thickens. So 
I'm going to take a quick break here because I want to start off on a new fit when we get back. Because I've had several queries over Facebook in the last little while, and I want to just float them for you and see what you think of them. So we'll take a little break, and when we get back, we'll have more with Jay Tysick right after this. often hear about the supposed dangers of human-induced climate change. But what about the disastrous consequences of climate policy? For example, the closing of Ontario's coal stations was the single most important cause of the 318% rise in power rates since 2002. Thousands of industrial wind turbines are being erected across the province, killing birds and bats and ruining the lives of people living nearby. The expanded use of biofuels has led to 6.5% of the world's grain going to fuel instead of food. Only 6% of the $1 billion spent every day on climate finance goes to helping people today. The rest is dedicated to trying to stop climate change that may someday happen. Yet the reports of the non-governmental International Panel on Climate Change show that the science backing the climate scare is highly uncertain. Isn't it time we focused on problems we know to be real? This message is brought to you by ClimateScienceInternational.org. All right, thanks for staying with us, folks. The numbers, if you've got any questions for my guest, uh, Jay Tysick, is uh, 343-700-4390-844-562-4766, nick at latenightcouncil.com. So I've got a couple things I want to go over, Jay, and I thought I'd ask you, first of all, 
with uh, your years as a political observer and now um, you know attempting to participate within the political system, what do you think the fallout's going to be over this uh, with Patrick Brown? Because he's got he's going to have he'll learn about this, no doubt about it. And when he does, it's going to get a little warm. So, what do you think the the, the fallout is? This going to resurrect a lot of people's concerns about it, or is he going to be able to bat this aside and say, "Oh well, no big deal." I don't know how much of this is going to stick to him directly. Like I said, I doubt the party's aware, but the reality is I'm looking at it, and these types of actions coupled with what he's been talking about lately, I'm just hard-pressed to find any conservatism left in the conservative party. I mean, this this kind of silencing opposition through lawsuits, that's what the liberals do. This is a liberal action, and you add to that Patrick Brown recently, I mean, I spoke about that, Evan Sullivan challenged him about hydro rates. Because he asked him, what's the most important issue this election? What do people care most about? And he said, hydro rates, hydro rates, hydro rates. That's it. That's all people want to talk about. He said, so you're going you're gonna to lower the hydro rates? He basically went, well, no, no, I'm not. And he said, they'll probably go up, actually. So, I mean, <laughs> and then he's implementing a carbon tax. He's keeping Kathleen Wynne's, uh, let's say, questionable sex ed package. Like, I mean, and That's now, a polite way and to now put they're, it. they're suing political opposition. I don't see a difference between this party and the Liberal Party anymore. None whatsoever. So I don't know how they're going to be able to activate their base in the upcoming election. I mean, Carlton alone, when you see the uh, the actions of this candidate, is that something that people are going to be inspired to get behind? I mean, these people are uh, like the whole thing is an undermining of democracy. How do these people go and actively undermine democracy and then say, we should be making laws for you? You know, I don't think anyone is going to trust that. It does put them in a in a very precarious position because, on one hand, we all want to see the win government go the way of the dodo bird. Mm. I mean, it's long past its best before date, if it ever had a best before date. Mm. And you would like to think that there is a, a you know a, gov- a government in waiting with a completely different agenda, a completely different outlook to take the province in a new direction, a positive one, and yet. I agree with you. I don't see any difference between the two parties other than the color of the flag flag at the top of the pole. And that's not a good enough reason to make a change. Now, I want a change. I just don't see any of the three mainstream parties that are going to be something that you can pick from. Now, there's all kinds of uh, smaller parties out there. There's Libertarians, Christian Heritage. You run down a long list. I don't mean to leave anybody out. I'm not trying to be, you know, selective. I'm just saying that there's dozens of little parties out there that always nibble away at the vote count and draw some support, whether it's, you know, they take a few hundred votes out of this riding, and if you package them together, you would have quite a substantial force on your hands to reckon with. So over the last, well, ever since this all started, especially when it first started, there was a lot of it. And even today I got a question, say, what about, is it time, and I'm just asking for your opinion what you think on this, is it time for Ontario to consider establishing a new party with everything that comes with that. Because you don't start a new party and all of a sudden say, everything's wonderful, and next time around we'll have a full slate of candidates. It takes time to build a party. It's like building a house. Mm. So with that said, given the fact that even if we change the flag, we're not going to change the policies, maybe now is the time. There's an argument to be made for that. I I don't think forming a new party is the right way to go. And and to be honest, since this all started, I've actually been approached by 
pretty much every other party and asked to consider being a candidate for them in the Carlton riding. <laughs> the NDP too? NDP as well. <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Jay, you don't look good in, in orange, buddy. Oh, uh, well, why not? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, I, I'm not considering other parties, to be honest. And uh, you mentioned there are some out there that I would probably find that my values align with, but, you know, there there is an argument to be made for being in a party that has the ability to make government. And right now, we know it's it's one of the three. That's right. right. Um, although, to be honest, I, I found out, I just found this out in an event on Saturday. Someone told me I'm already listed on Wikipedia as an independent candidate in the Carlton riding. <laughs> well, we all know how reliable Wikipedia yeah, is. Yeah, well, if you can't trust the internet. <laughs> it must be true. It's yeah, on yeah. the internet. <laughs> so, but that was a shock to me. But I... Uh, you know, so I, I still think that the Conservative Party is definitely salvageable. I don't think it would take much. I think um, there needs to be a concerted effort by the members, though, to do that. I think that's the most realistic, practical thing we could do. And there's two ways. Like, I mean, I believe damage has been done through this nomination process to the party. I believe that the members uh, have been kind of disenfranchised by both the 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 flip-flops that the leader has done the promises he's made and then subsequently broken there's not a lot of trust left in what he says going forward and i mean he's getting criticized constantly for that but as well these nominations with i mean i don't know if there's anyone left who doesn't think there was funny business and shenanigans with a, a myriad of uh nominations across the province i can think of at least 10 that have been in the media as questionable. So if you've got, uh, like, people getting kicked out before the nomination, after the close of membership sales, you've got guys like Derek Duval who sold over 1,200 memberships. That's a huge deal. He sold over 1,200, and then those people were denied their, their choice. They were denied even the opportunity to vote for the person that they paid to vote for. How can we now go forward and build up our membership? How can someone go out with confidence and say, pay your 10 bucks and vote for me? They'll be like, but that's not a guarantee. I'd rather just keep the 10 bucks. You know, there's no way we can build membership. And how are we going to attract good candidates when that's like a possibility? They're going to be kicked out right before the nomination and have their reputation tarnished. This is why I would argue with you a little bit about whether or not this party is salvageable. It's possible that it is, but it would take a major revolution from within the ranks. Well, I'll tell you two things that we could do right now. And I think that these are simple things to do. I think it's stuff the membership can get behind, and I think Patrick Brown can easily agree to. For starters, we need to start vetting the candidates before they sell the memberships, not after. Because then once someone is vetted and they're allowed to run, they can go forward and sell with confidence. You know? The trouble with that, though, because I hear you. Yeah. The trouble is I don't trust him to do that. Well, I'm saying he's we the could, one that changed it from the it. beginning to the end in the first place. Yeah, I've never seen it at the end before. Like and I've been doing this for 20 some years, you know. That's what I mean. So I don't have any confidence that you could ever talk him into doing it. Well, not me personally, no. No, no, I'm but talking about the, the royal we. Well, I think it's worth trying because it's a very simple thing. Just to say, just do it the way it's supposed to be done. Do it the way it's normally done. Respect democracy, respect the voice of the people. Let them choose who they want. As the other side of that coin. Let's let's assume for a moment that Patrick Brown and his advisors realize they've made a huge mistake, which I am hard pressed to believe they ever would. <laughs> but let's, for the sake of this discussion, say mm-hmm. they go, "Oh my God!" They have an epiphany and they say, "All right, since 
we want to form the next government, we have to do this because yeah. otherwise we don't stand a chance, which is the truth. Absolutely. Okay. What, out, what person out there would trust him to keep his word? How many well, times has he broken it so far? You make an excellent point, but uh, I guess we'd know pretty quickly if he did or didn't. But that just puts it okay. And I'm like I'm playing devil's advocate yeah. here because I don't know whether now whether or not now is the best time. We have a federal leadership going on, mm-hmm. which you've got because you've got the same voter concentrating on two different very important uh, leadership situations, right? Mm-hmm. One a leadership race, and the other one lousy leadership. Well, so, I don't think there's any new uh, nominations coming up for a while. Per, like provincially. Okay, but my point is you, you've got people concerned about what's going on in the province of Ontario under the mm-hmm. PC banner. Right. Okay. And that's taking their attention. And then out, out, uh, on the federal side, you've got 14 people. Well, after what Brian O'Leary, uh, is his first name Brian O'Leary? Kevin. Kevin O'Leary said mm-hmm. this week, I think he kind of scratched himself off the list when he insulted <laughs> soldiers. I mean, that was just, I have never read anything so politically stupid in my life. Anyway, so he probably scratched himself off the list without even trying in that instance. But generally, you got 13 people running to replace Stephen Harper, and that's going to take a lot of time and effort, and money. It would still be 14 even without him. Anyway, yeah, not, I thought there was 14. Yeah. You know what? Who cares? Yeah. But the the point that I'm making is that you've got this two issues going on at the same time. Maybe it's best to hold the the idea of a new party until May when this other one, the federal race, is over. Then everybody can concentrate on this. The other side of that coin is that puts it down six months away mm. before you get started. That's six months closer to the election. So I can see both sides. And I can also understand people's desire. The frustration has never been higher. As a matter of fact, I was talking to somebody tonight about this. I think it was my um, my daughter's fiancé uh, talking about – we were talking <laughs> how we came to this. I have no idea. But I thought a great protest – in downtown Toronto would have to be at night and you have 15 or 20,000 people marching down Young Street towards Queen's Park with pitchforks and lanterns chanting lock her up as they walk up the street <laughs> and he just <coughs> the fun, we had a ball with that idea now I'm not condoning you know violence I'm not saying that we should actually go and burn down Queen's Park and lynch Catherine Lynch. I'm not calling for that under any circumstances don't let anybody out there think that's what I'm actually advocating I'm kidding tongue in cheek uh but the idea of the mental image right mm. of they're coming to the palisades and they're coming for you would be a very powerful message so I thought it would be a lot of fun but I think that with this going on right now you're you're What's that old saying? If you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't, then go ahead and do. Because either way. That's what I've been doing since the nomination. Yeah, I know. So <laughs> is, it all that, uh, is it all that unreasonable then to say, well, maybe we should at least start having the conversation about what it would take to get a political party off the ground? Because you have to set up riding associations. Yeah. You have to have uh, – you drop your, your – um, uh, what do they call that? Your constitution – on how the parties can be managed and run, and you're going to have to put into place uh, people to run the different constituencies and so on. You have to find candidates. Yet there's money that has to be generated. Uh, a friend of mine who knows was telling me it takes about two million dollars a year to run a political party in Ontario in a non-election year. Mm. So of course that number goes up when you're running an election. So you've got to raise a lot of money. However, if you're ever going to do it. And when people are angry and they see a solution that they that they can get behind to sink their teeth into, 
raising the money might not be all that difficult. Well, um, like I said, there's been a lot of options uh, put forward, and people have talked to me too about the possibility of working together for a new party. And I haven't scratched that off the list. I'm just saying, for the reasons you're mention, mentioning, um, practically, it's probably best to try and salvage this one. I don't think it's gotten to the point where it's no longer salvageable. I think uh, probably with a few simple adjustments, we could restore the confidence we have in the leadership. But well, I think will we do it? But will we do it? And will he agree? You know, those are the questions you're posing. Maybe it is time for a new party. You know, it's not a conversation that people have closed off ideas to, and myself included. Because I don't, I just can't see Patrick Brown stepping down without some kind of huge push or knife in the back or something along that line from a political point of view. Um, well, I, just, I wasn't suggesting this. I know. Down. I was, I'm just, the second point, if I may, then was just he needs to. You know, he campaigned on a very social conservative platform. He made a lot of promises to social conservatives. And I'm not saying that's what got him the leadership, but he did make those promises. It certainly helped. Oh, big time. I mean, you've got about 30 to 40% of the party easily that are socially conservative, but he made promises to them, and then he reneged on those promises. So coming from a, a political background, the promises you make during a campaign are not just to sound good and get votes. I mean, that is where you derive your mandate. You say, these are the things I'm going to do. People then vote for you. And you say, now I have a mandate from the people to do them. So when he said, I'm going to do this, that, and the other thing, and they all went, yay, clap, and voted for him, he can't then go, yeah, I'm not actually going to do any of those things. I've got a different direction in mind. Which he is, has no mandate from the party. so Which is why people don't trust him. Yeah, exactly. But so, he, if he puts forward a mandate, says, this is what my mandate is as I see it now going forward, maybe we could get behind him. But we don't even know what it is. Well, like I said, the chance of him actually doing that, I just don't see it happening. Yeah, I really I don't. So, but at least it would make clear that his intention is not to work with the members of this party. And then we'd know for sure if it's salvageable or Well, not. what more evidence do you need when he looked at social conservatives and landowners and said, eh, don't need you. Get lost. I'm paraphrasing a lot. But, yeah, that's in effect what he said. Yeah. You know, it was a mistake to, to associate with uh, SOCONs and, and landowners. What are you, crazy? They're the ones that got you here. Yeah. I mean, that's 30 or 40% of your base, and you just threw it away. Oh, it's insane. The of course of people it is. that represents across the province who he just said, your voice isn't welcome in our new big tent party. Well, that's not what we voted for. Yeah. So there's, and this is why I'm, I'm just milking, not milking, but I'm just um, kicking this idea around because, um, of course, there's all kinds of problems that when you start a new party that are going to rise, you're going to have some real, let's face it, you're going to get some real wingnuts coming out of the woodwork all over the place wanting to be part of this and nothing everybody has a political voice and i'm not suggesting that you should say no to anybody but you do have to be careful about it's like your own home you know anybody has the right to ask you for a favor but not everybody has a right to walk through the front door hmm. so you've got to be careful about who you associate with and the kind of image you portray so that you do in the very beginning when you're laying the foundation so there's all it's it's fraught with problems. There's no doubt about it. It's also um, that's where you 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 train your new leaders. This is where the new party the party leadership will come from that has integrity and understands what it means to keep your word, even if it hurts you personally. Mm -hmm. You know because that's what integrity is: doing the right thing when nobody's looking. Well, I mean, short term pain for long term gain. If you destroy your credibility to get a, you know, a, a moment's gratification, then. 
long term, they're, they're just going to revolt, even those same people who are currently saying, hey, yay, good for you. With that, we have to take a break here, Jay. So hang on. We'll come back. I want to ask you a couple more questions before we let you go. All right. You guys stay right there. We'll be right back after this. For 17 years, I've been taking my cars to Irwin's Automotion. 17 years ago, Irwin was renting space on the corner of Bank and Heron. His encyclopedic knowledge of all things mechanical and his no-bull honesty has resulted in his second move. He now operates a huge facility on Cleopatra, eight bays and an expert staff that operate all in the same wavelength. Honesty, integrity, try to save the customers some money and headaches, but fix it right the first time. Irwin's Automotion, 34, Cleopatra. Tell them Council sent you. That'll make them smile. Folks, I'm sitting here and I'm looking. Somebody sent me a picture over Facebook, and it said uh, Christmas parade in Osgood, and there's Goldie Gamari, perched in Santa's sleigh, dressed in white, with her dog uh, beside her. She really, she, you know what she looks like. And I, this is just my personal opinion. Okay, first of all, that should be Santa sitting up there, not her. Most politicians that I am aware of, any Christmas or any parade, if they're in it, they walk, and they wave to the people, and you know. 
they get booed and hissed and cheered and clapped. And just like when the president throws the first pitch out at a baseball game. She's sitting in Santa's sleigh, and she looks like a snowflake queen. She really does. So anyway, that's just my personal opinion. You can share it or not. You can like it or not. There you go. All right, Jay, before we leave um, provincial politics, because there's a couple other things we want to ask you about, just to kind of wrap the whole package up, put a little bow on it, what do you think Patrick Brown's chances are in the next election if nothing changes? If nothing changes, I think they're abysmal. I mean, he's following a failed strategy. We've seen it before. Um, You cannot hope to be premier by default. You cannot say people are so upset with win. That's been tried before. Yeah. (laughs) I think John Tory, Tim Hudak, (laughs) you know. It didn't work very well for them either. It was a failed strategy for them. Why does Patrick think it's going to be different? Now, granted, Kathleen Wynn, we've never seen someone so disliked as that. But if Patrick doesn't come up with something to distinguish himself, he's just, he's hoping to be premier by default. And it does not work. Okay. Especially with these candidates that he's picking who are not accepted or represented in the writing. Now, wasn't there a reason and I said that was gonna be the last one, but there's you when you said that, in the in the case of the woman who was the Filipino who who won the riding, mm. she was not the hand picked candidate. No. The hand picked candidate who ran in that race came in last. Yes. I love it. Me too. People said, I don't think we're gonna let him get away with that. All right, yeah. now. That was a high talk risk. about a slap. Yeah. In it. Well, no, but I mean, the down. way it worked, I mean, I, I, my understanding, and I wasn't there obviously, but the story I heard and the, the story that was in the media was that uh, his handpicked candidate was rejected, and then the party put her back in themselves. They intervened in the riding association, put her back in, like, <laughs> and then they were surprised she came in last. Yeah. All right, now, so for Jay Tysick, what's what's the future hold? Well, apparently, I don't know if you've heard, but I read it. In a few sources now that I'm running as an independent. Um, so I guess I'm committed. Uh, no, I, I'm probably leaning that way. You are being committed, did you say? Yeah, not yet. Okay. Um, we'll see how this all goes. Um, no, I'm, <laughs> I think there's a, a really good chance that's the way this is going to go. You know, I, right. I, I just don't see what, what is being offered there as candidates, as something that the people should have to deal with. I don't think they're they're good representatives of the area. Let's just say that. So I, I feel almost compelled. Just like when I when this all happened, I mean, I didn't get in this to start attacking Patrick Brown and calling shenanigans. I got in it to just win a nomination. And it was when I saw what was going on, I felt compelled to speak out because I saw wrong being done in my backyard and thought, I can't not correct it. So it's sort of still there. I feel like I'll have to run as an independent for the same reasons. I, you got a lot of people who don't want that representation. Well, well best of luck to you, that's for sure. Short term, I'm going to enjoy Christmas, though. So yeah, well, <laughs> I, I don't blame you. Christmas is that time of year. And uh, I certainly wish you, you and your family all the best on that. Let's, and yours. Let's, um, let's switch to federal for just a minute just to kind of wrap the hour up. Hmm. When you look at the federal scene and the different candidates that are out there, who do you like? I like Brad Trost. I think he's great. Okay. Yeah. Expand on that. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, I think he's someone who's willing to stand up for his principles. And, uh, you know, it's not the same principles that everyone's going to share, but he's standing up for them. And I happen to agree with them, and I think a lot of people do. I think he's tapping into uh, an underrepresented market in politics. You know, those the, the silent majority, as it were. Right. People who care about family values. People who care about the economy. People who don't want 
to be hurt by agenda-driven policymaking that isn't supported in science. I mean, this guy's a scientist. He's studied the global warming issues and just said, I don't see a case for the way that the current government wants to solve that problem if there is a problem. And he says he doesn't believe there is based on his scientific background. Yeah, of all the leaders, he's the most qualified to speak on that topic. I would think so. I mean, he's the one with personal understanding of the science behind it. And I just I don't see anything being proposed as a solution. A carbon tax does not solve this problem. No. If you believe there is a problem. And we're not even baiting the problem. The question is, would this hugely expensive carbon tax solve the problem? And there's nothing to indicate it would even make a dent. It's just punishing Canadians for stuff they have no control over. And then you've also got things like cap and trade and mm-hmm. all the the move to, you know, carbon neutral nonsense. All that stuff uh, is based on basically a lie. Yeah. And the government promotes it hand over fist. If you want to just get an idea how deeply involved Canada is in this, um, just take a look at some of the grants and incentives there are for green energy projects. You, on every level, every province, uh, municipal, federal, and provincial they all have programs, and they all come out of our pocket because there is only one taxpayer. So it's enough to make you just want to pull your hair out. And I think we've reached the squealing point as taxpayers. I think we've hit that point where we just can't take any more taxation. Well, it does hit that point because now you're you're seeing the real consequences where uh, people are having their power shut off in the middle of the winter. Uh, I know even – even, I know this isn't related, but now you have a problem with the, the Phoenix system with uh, – oh, with uh, people. Yeah. You know what? I had, look, I've always felt that the people who work civil service have pretty good jobs, mm. but nobody wants to go without getting paid. No. And I, I think this is – and then they tried to blame it on Harper, yeah, and which I, I thought I, was rather know, rich. I don't think uh... – regardless of how stable and secure your job is, I don't think there's a lot of utilities that are going to let you go this long without making a payment, Look, you know? They're, they're, especially Hydro One. Mm. Um, everybody is, is doing the best they can, but if you have bills to pay yourself, if you're a renter, as an example, yeah. somebody's or a leasing a home instead of buying one, and you have to make your lease payments, or if you're renting an apartment or something, what's the person who's, who's um, you know, who has the place you're renting, what's he supposed to do? Mm. You know, the landlords, they still have bills to pay. They can't take a break just because the government screwed up your paycheck. So, the, this is, and it's endemic, you know. it's it's. And how many of these people now, if I may, are dipping into their credit, and when they do pay it back, it's going to be with interest. I mean, it's been month after month. Who's paying that interest? This and you know full of- well the government won't give them their back pay with interest. Yeah, well, we'll see. I, I hope they do because, I mean, these people have had to dip. I'm not crazy, but, you know, look, this is such a convoluted mess. I wish I'd, I'd, I'd really done more homework on it, but I do feel for those people mm. because nobody wants to work without getting paid. So with that, it's just it's it's a, I guess what I'm trying to really boil around to is the present management of the country has a mindset that really is sunny ways. Mm. They think that nothing's going to go wrong. No one's ever going to expect them to do anything. No crises will arise. And then when they when it does happen, they're caught flat footed. Take a look at the at the Jiprock tax out of out, out west, up to three hundred two hundred ninety seven percent import duty on drywall. What are they trying to do in Fort Mac right now? Wow. Yeah, rebuild. Yeah, and what's <laughs> one of the main components in the in, a, in the reconstruction of a home? You ever try to hang your hang your paintings on a wall that isn't there? It's just two by fours and insulation. Doesn't work too well. So anyway, well. It, it does every 16th inch. 
<laughs> 16 inches. <laughs> yes, yes, when you hit the study. All right. Well, listen, Jay, it's it's always a pleasure to have you in the studio. It's a lot of fun. Yeah. I really do wish you the best, whatever Thanks. comes in the new year. And um, uh, good luck to you over the in that venture. And Merry Christmas and Happy New Year's to you and yours. Thank you. And to yours. And it's always a pleasure to talk with you next All right. Time. With that, we'll take a break. We'll let Jay get out of here, and we'll come back with some more right after this on The Nick at Night Show. Timo's 2000 Mobile Auto Cleaning comes right to your driveway and makes your vehicle look brand new again. Classic cars, bikes, boats, RVs, dump trucks, hot rods, tractors, transport trucks. We can even make your minivan look like the day you drove it off the lot. Did you spill too much coffee on your seat? Did Junior decide he couldn't wait till he got home? And yuck, maybe you're just long overdue for that meticulous cleaning. Maybe you want to sell the old beast. Smartest thing you can do is make it look brand new again. Timo's 2000, 613-327-8498, 613-327-8498, or go to timos2000.com. Right, three four three seven zero zero. We're just saying goodbye to Jay. He's just on his way out the door because, like any other guest, we never let him get out that cleanly. <laughs> All right, three four three seven zero zero forty three ninety. Safe drive, Jay. Eight four four five six two four seven six six. Nick at late night council dot com. All right, now there's a couple of things on the the uh, topics list that I want to get to. First of all. All right. This is kind of tied into what I mentioned off the top of the show. Oh, let me do a little housekeeping before I get into um, the next set of topics. I will not be here next Wednesday night. It's the 28th. Uh, I'll be at home with my family enjoying the Christmas holidays. So we'll see you all again in the new year. Just so that uh, just because I'm not here, don't think that it's it's going away. We're just taking a break for the holidays and... Uh, uh, I just want to let you know that before I forget at the end of the show, which is no good. Now, you remember the the situation uh, last summer where there were two Canadians held somewhere in Southeast Asia, and they were they, they've since been killed. But 
they were threatening. And I can't even remember the, the gentleman's name. I think one was from Calgary. I forget where the other guy was from. And they were held by Islamic terrorists. And if the government didn't pay them some money, they were going to cut their heads off. Well, guess what? Those two individuals are now dead. And then we have this story. And it's enough to make you just... It breaks your heart. The Canadian... Canada calls for the unconditional release of kidnapped couple in Afghanistan. Will you get a load of the year? This is published December 20th, 2016. So this is a very recent article. All right. As a matter of fact, it was yesterday. The Canadian authorities have called for the unconditional release of a kidnapped Canadian man and his American wife who were kidnapped apparently by the Taliban militants back in 2012. Four years ago. Now, this goes back into the previous government's mandate. So neither government is clean on this. Because like I said, in the case with these two individuals uh, who were um, killed in, in um, Southeast Asia, I think it was Malaysia, but I'm not sure. So that's why I'm hesitating to um, name a particular country. But there's a man and his wife and two boys in this case that... In the, I'm sorry, I'm jumping ahead of myself. In the case in Southeast Asia, there are two, two men. We have the Canadian Special Operations Regiment called CSOR, who are elite uh, special forces troops. And we have JTF2. Both of these are organizations, these regiments, are trained to do rescues and go in and deal with situations exactly like this. They're trained to take out terrorists. They're trained to operate behind enemy lines. They're trained to, in covert operations. They're trained in hostage uh, alleviation situations. Uh, and yet, to the best of my knowledge, and it, look, there's lots about these two regiments I don't know. Nobody does. They're very secret, and that's for their own safety and for their effectiveness on the battlefield. But I don't think either government has ever looked at using them. Like in this case, the government's calling on the unconditional for the unconditional release. All right, so the first question comes, what are you going to do about it? If they don't release him, what? What are you going to do? Let me read some more of this. The video shows Canadian Joshua Boyle and American Caitlin Coleman, who refer to the Kaf, Kaf, I can't even say that word, Kafkesque nightmare, which we find ourselves, and urges governments on both sides to reach a deal for their freedom. She then adds, this is the wife, of course, my children have seen their mother defiled. Canadian Global Affairs spokesman Michael O'Shaughnessy said the government was aware of the latest video. We're deeply concerned for the safety and well-being of Joshua Boyle and Caitlin Coleman and their young children and call for their unconditional release. The State Department said it was reviewing the footage according to the Associated Press. This comes as militants released a video of the couple in early September and said it was believed that the video was released to pressurize governments to stop the execution of a top Haqqani network leader, Anas Haqqani. Earlier, the couple appeared in two videos in 2013 asking the U.S. government to free them from the Taliban. The Colemans received a letter last November in which their daughter said she has given birth to a second child in captivity. Oh, man. So the question becomes... Because this is both jointly American and Canadian uh, situation with with the dual citizenships here, what are they going to do about it? Have they shown any interest in doing anything about it? It's enough to make you just it breaks your heart. These in the picture, these two little boys, one is a toddler with a soothing in his mouth, and the other one's maybe a year or two older. So these are little kids, and yet 
Nobody seems to want to do anything but wave their finger in the air. You know, it's possible they've tried to get Seesaw or JTF2 or, uh, you know, Delta Team 6 or the SEALs or somebody in there to rescue them, and it just can't be done. Maybe that's the case, but I have no confidence in either Barack Obama's uh, organization, government or um, the Boy King, uh, Justin Trudeau's government, to actually get anything done on this front. And it is just heartrending. What's the point of having regiments like this if we won't use them? Is there a chance that something bad will happen to these people when we try to rescue them? They might get killed or hurt or, you know, who knows what? Yes, absolutely. When you enter into operations like this, of course there is. But what are the chances that something bad will happen to them if we don't do it? I mentioned in the previous hour, sometimes you're damned if you do, if you're damned if you don't. Well, don't you think this would be a case of when you do it anyway? And you trust the, you trust your special forces to use the training to make sure that, you know, they get the job done or keep the damage to a very minimum. Just That's the whole point of having these guys. So it's enough to just drive you or drive me around the bend. I just get fed up with it because I don't want to see any Canadians uh, in danger because governments haven't got the foggiest idea of what to do. They either don't know what assets they have or are afraid they might look hawkish or, ooh, we might kill somebody, we might hurt somebody. That's what a military unit is for. When you have someone seize your citizens and hold them for ransom, they become your enemy. And if it means that you have to kill them to get your people back, that's what you do and you don't need to apologize for it. Why people can't get this through their heads is just beyond me. You know, I think part of the problem is Kevin, going back to Kevin O'Leary's comments about how there's, no, there's nothing noble about being a warrior. What an absolute, utterly embarrassing thing to say. Canada has a long and proud military history that goes back all the way, oh man, Back to If you want to go all the way back to the to War of 1812, you could probably make the case. We don't, we, are not, we don't have anything to be embarrassed about. Our, our history is not perfect. There are warts and wrinkles on it, you know, and blemishes, but nothing like some of the other countries that are out there. We've got nothing to be ashamed of. We don't hang our head in front of anybody. So the comments like that, there's a whole culture that actually believes that peacekeeping is more important than the ability to make peace. That comes from this whole, oh, we got to be peacekeepers. We got to. I watched the movie on uh, Netflix the other night. It was called the uh, the Siege of Yakutville, and it was about an Irish regiment who went into Africa in 1960. I'm going to say 1961, and they were sent in as peak peacekeepers in the province of Katanga in the new country of the Congo, which used to be run by Belgium. Okay, it used to be called the Belgian Congo. And they were sent into this town. I won't tell the whole movie, but through that movie, through the, through the demonstration of that movie, you, you see what's wrong with this whole idea of sending people in who are supposed to keep peace when there is no peace to keep. There just isn't. There, just, there was never any hope of them being successful. There was never any chance of them being able to accomplish their mission. Sounds a lot like a re- more, much more recent Canadian uh, deployment to a place called Rwanda. Remember that? The only time we've ever been successful in peacekeeping is when Canadians do it 
number one. And I'm talking about the UN now. And when it's when the rules of engagement are thrown out the window by generals like General Lewis McKenzie, when they ignore the UN rules about how to conduct these operations, we are successful. Because the combatants learn very quickly that we do not run away. We will lay a beating on you if you try to come after us, and you're going to pay a bloody toll. So when we sit down at the negotiating table with them and we say this is how it's going to be, they're not going to argue with us because they know we mean it. Does anybody ever give any lip to a guy called Chuck Ye- Chuck Yeager? Yeah, him too. Uh, Chuck Norris. You know, when Chuck Norris goes to bed at night and claps twice, the sun goes out. No, nobody ever gives him a hard time. And he doesn't have to go around beating people up. The fact that he can is enough. The fact that he's proven it is enough. Steven Seagal, the same thing. He doesn't have to worry about his safety, and he doesn't have to worry about, you know, the safety of those around him. Because unless he knows somebody's really stupid and wants to take him on, they're going to pay a heck of a price. But most people understand that these are very powerful individuals and can handle themselves, and if you attack them, you're going to pay a price. The Canadian Army and the Canadian military is viewed the same way across the world. That's why we are effective peacekeepers when we're allowed to actually do the job we're sent in to do without the handcuffing that goes on with the UN. So that's when I look at stories like this, this family that's been taken by terrorists, and I think about the assets that both the United States and Canada can draw from and how it certainly looks to the outside world. They've been there since 2012. Nobody's even made an attempt. How long does it take to put one of these operations together? Now, on another note, there's a very serious problem, if you don't know about it. Uh, there's two elements to this. I'm talking about the assassination of the Russian ambassador in Ankara, in Ankara um, Turkey. I think you say it, Ankara, or Ankara, uh, is capital Turkey. The Russian ambassador is at an um, art gallery and talking about building bonds with the country of Turkey to fight uh, the Islamic State and the Assad regime in Turkey. And while he's giving his speech, a gunman walks up behind him and just shoots him dead, shoots him in the back, and starts screaming, Allah Akbar, Allah Akbar. Okay, and I have the clip here. Um, It's not, I can't, I can let you, let me just run it back here a little bit. Uh, no, hang on to that. And I'm going to turn this mic a little bit, just like that. Actually, here's what I'm going to do. I want you to hear this. This is, oh, that's the BBC. Now, the reason I've got the BBC clip up is because the, the BBC clip uh, mentions nothing, mentions absolutely nothing about the first part of what happened. doesn't mention anything about him screaming Allah Akbar and that kind of stuff. Uh, they leave all that out. All they say about it in the clip uh, no, hang on now. It's running and I don't want it to yet. Okay. So all they say about it in the clip is that he said, remember Aleppo, remember Syria. Those are the only two words according to that they pick out of this thing. But when you listen to this, now it's it's all in Arabic. I can read the translation if you well. Uh, but the bottom line, listen to the very first things that he says. Now I know it's not going to be all that clear, but um, according to the video and the translation that I have with it, he very clearly says, Allah, Allah, I can't even say it myself. Uh, Allah Akbar. 
And first you hear the pistol shots where he sh- actually, literally, you see the guy fall in the video. He just drops to the floor. He's seriously wounded at first, dies later of his wounds. Okay, and this guy walks up behind him, and then he starts screaming, Allah Akbar, Allah Akbar. And as long as our towns are not secure, you will know no peace. Okay, and then talks about, remember Aleppo. and The question becomes, why didn't CBC tell him about the first part? So I'm going to see how well this works. Here it is. Okay, you heard the opening. Let me let me read you the. Um, okay, there's yeah. Let me scoot a little ahead a little bit. Okay, that was the the sound of the, of him shooting the um, the uh, ambassador. So he says, "Awala Akbar," and if I can just shoot ahead to the next, uh, here it is. Uh, we are we are those who have given a pledge of allegiance to Muhammad that we will carry on. That's. Uh, that we will carry on jihad uh, this, as long as we live. This is what he's screaming. He goes back to Allah Akbar, and then he says, don't forget Aleppo. Then he says, don't forget Aleppo again. Don't forget Syria. As long as our towns are not secure, you won't have a taste of security. Back off. Only death will take me away from here. He ends up being shot by police. But the point is, this translation has been checked for accuracy to make sure that's what he actually said. But in the clip, you watch, the first thing you see is the ambassador facing you. He, he grimaces and drops. You hear the gunfire going off behind him. Then this guy in a suit and a tie with a pistol in his hand walks forward and begins to scream uh, this, this out. So why didn't the CBC or any of the other major news networks include the whole transcript of what he said? Well, the answer is they don't want to associate terrorism with Islam. And yet here this guy is associating Islam with terrorism. He shot this guy because he took a pledge to Muhammad to continue jihad. How is that not associated? Look, If I, as a Catholic, did the same thing and I said, in the name of Pope John Paul or in the name of Jesus Christ, I execute you, would they censor that out? Would they say that's not religiously motivated? Nonsense. Of course they would and they'd be right. Now, I'm not going to do that. But this kind of stuff, this, this is a censoring of what we're being told and it goes on all the time. All right, with that, we'll take a little break. I've got a little more for you about that when we get back right after this.
We often hear about the supposed dangers of human-induced climate change. But what about the disastrous consequences of climate policy? For example, the closing of Ontario's coal stations was the single most important cause of the 318% rise in power rates since 2002. Thousands of industrial wind turbines are being erected across the province, killing birds and bats and ruining the lives of people living nearby. The expanded use of biofuels has led to 6.5% of the world's grain going to fuel instead of food. Only 6% of the $1 billion spent every day on climate finance goes to helping people today. The rest is dedicated to trying to stop climate change that may someday happen. Yet the reports of the non-governmental International Panel on Climate Change show that the science backing the climate scare is highly uncertain. Isn't it time we focused on problems we know to be real? This message is brought to you by ClimateScienceInternational.org. A big, big city and it's always the same Can never be too pretty Tell me your name, is it out of line? If I was to be bold and say, would you be mine? Because I may be a beggar and you may be the queen I know I may be on a downer, I'm still ready to dream Though it's three o'clock The time is just the time it takes for you to talk So if you're I didn't know I have it, but I have a clip of um, the, the American and Canadian hostages, Caitlin Coleman. Um, it's a, it's going to run about three and a half minutes long, but this is her and her husband asking for help. I cut the first 48 seconds out of it because it's just um, Islamic chanting and so on. So here it is. Listen to this. Today is December 3rd, 2016. We have waited since 2012 somebody to understand our problems, the Kafka-esque nightmare in which we find ourselves. We understand both sides hate us and are content to leave us and our two surviving children in these problems. But we can only ask and pray that somebody will recognize the atrocities these men carry out against us as so-called retaliation in their ingratitude and hypocrisy. My children have seen their mother defiled. We ask quickly in our collective 14th year of prison urge the governments on both sides to reach some agreement to allow us freedom obama your legacy on leaving office is probably important to you and our lives and these of our children are to us so please don't become the next jimmy carter just give the offenders something so they and you can save face and we can leave the region permanently donald trump the legacy of a millennia of demon worship in this country is that those who speak high and noble of Islamic ideals are not going to simply release our family easily because, because it is correct. They want money, power, friends. You must give them these things before progress can be made. 
A five-year hostage taking is too long and indicates failure on every side. Believe us, we have tried to explain the irony and sin to these men, but to no avail. We need you and the government to step up and do us a favor here and solve the problems. We are told there are Afghans who are prisoners in Kabul that these men care about, and they do not want to be punished. Indeed, they threaten to retaliate against our family, that their group will do us harm and punish us. So we ask that you are merciful to their people, and God willing, they will release us. And to whichever State Department official has to watch this video, we both know the President's not going to see it, or the coming President, and that the decision ultimately probably lies with you. There's no point explaining that to our captors. And I'm sure you think that my family could get out of this if we wanted, and I can only promise you that we can't. You, like us, probably underestimate the arrogant ignorance that pervades these people and don't understand that we're dealing with the people who think that America killed all the monkeys in their country and the drones are listening to them sleep at night. There's no point explaining to them that we are the worst bandies to try and have a prisoner exchange with. They really will not settle this until they get what they're demanding, so I can only ask that you will please quickly try to resolve this for our sake and the sake of our children. And we can talk about compensation later, but it has been more than four years, and so I do plead with you to please be quick. So there you have it. That's the uh, the family of uh, Caitlin Coleman and her husband, her Canadian husband, pleading with both governments for help. I don't know what it takes. Like, uh, I'm sorry that that when you watch it, I mean, you see the dejection in their face uh, when you watch that video. It's available on YouTube if you want to go and look at it. I think I have it posted on my Facebook page as well. But man, oh man, those two little boys. They just, what do you say? How, how, if you're in a position of authority and you could do something about this, how do you sleep at night? To know the, about the situation and say, release them unconditionally. Yeah, that's worked. It just breaks your heart. It just breaks your heart. Now, uh, Angela Merkel is still in denial. She is terrified that this attack in Berlin, uh, very much similar to the one in Nice in France last summer where the truck drove through all those people. This one slammed through a shopping mall or some kind of shopping area and killed 50 wounded, 50 people injured, and I think nine dead, if I remember the, the story correctly. Uh, was afraid that it might be a refugee. Really? You think? Look, I don't know what you, how well you follow uh, foreign politics. There's God, God knows there's enough problems here at home. And it really bothers me to have to bring this up on Christmas. But, look, we have to stay alert and have to pay attention to what's going on in the world around us because it's closing in. It's not like there's any place else we can go, right? Uh, this kind of stuff is brought to our shores. There was even a terror, terrorist attack in Vancouver. But you didn't know that either, did you? I know I sure didn't until recently. Because we've been so focused on what's going on with uh, the province and the PCs. And, you know, there's a federal leadership race, the continuing follies down there on the Hill. And Kathleen Wynne, in complete denial, I posted an article this week about um, 
about how she says she's staying to the end. And my attitude is, God, I hope she does. At 14% in the polls, you know, that's, <laughs> I think she should stay right where she is. Now, because we don't really have a choice on the other side, I'm getting off track. But the, the bottom line is this, this Islamic terrorism seemed to have taken a break, but all of a sudden it's exploded all over the world again. And it just goes to show that this enemy never really quits. This this kind of threat not only is always present. It's not like during the Cold War there was always the threat of nuclear attack. But you knew that there was at least some semblance of sanity on both sides of the fight. On both sides of the fight. So if the Russians decided they were going to try to throw the dice and win it all in one stroke... They knew that there would be a heavy price to pay because the Americans, of course, as soon as they found out there were ICBMs in the air coming their way, they were going to launch theirs. So it was a policy called MAD, Mutually Assured Destruction. And that kept the world, and I use the word loosely, safe for about 40 years. In this case, there's none of that. These people have a manifest destiny. They see what they're doing as some kind of holy war, and they want to be rewarded by Allah in heaven for dying in his name. How do you defeat somebody like that? How do you get there? You can't negotiate with them. There's no point. Because they don't want to negotiate. If you pull the Hamas charter, do this sometime. Pull the charter of the organization called Hamas. Go online, you can find it. I know I've done it a number of times. But one of the things in it is that as long as the state of Israel exists, there can be no peace. As long as there's a Jewish person alive on the planet, there can be no peace. And don't think they'll stop if they ever got if they ever managed to to you know take out all the Jews because guess who's next? There was an interesting uh, video I watched here in the last uh, yesterday the day before, and the idea was if everybody converted to Muslim, or this is the theory, if everybody became a Muslim, terrorism would drop off. Well, the truth is that most, 99.6% of the terrorist attacks, excluding the one in, in the most recent ones like in Vancouver and Berlin and places like that, but the vast majority of them take place within Islamic countries. So if that's true, why are we seeing terrorist attacks against Muslim against Muslim? You, in, in other words, the logical conclusion is that, it would, that these kind of things would not... Uh, cease to happen, they would get worse. We have a real problem on our hands here, folks. I And I just, it blows my end, my mind. Now, here's another little gem. And again, I go back to the United Nations and just, I can't, I can't tell you how much I despise this organization. According to the United Nations, that Morocco does not spawn, spawn uh, what's the heading now? Does not spawn, let me go back a notch. Does not produce refugees. Yeah, Morocco does not produce refugees. Okay. Uh, facts and figures are vital to the UN Human uh, what's it? Human Refugee Agency. I, they got they got more acronyms than the U.S. government does. Uh, let's see. Full-time statistician, statisticians keep track of the number of people of concern to the agency. These figures are released every June in the annual Global Trends Report. Global Global Force Displacement 
has increased in 2015 with more people forced from their homes by war, conflict, and persecution since World War II. By the end of this year, 65.3 million individuals were forcibly displaced worldwide. This is 5.8 million more than the previous year at 59.5 million. This figure of 65.3 million includes 16.1 million refugees registered with the UN, 5.2 million Palestinian refugees registered by the United Nations Relief and Workers Agency, and so on. And then they have under the heading, where do the world's refugees come from? 54% of refugees come from three countries, Somalia, Afghanistan, and Syria. Jordan, Ethiopia, Islamic Republic, Lebanon, Pakistan, they don't even mention Morocco, which is nonsense. There's a very real uh, possibility that the driver of the car, truck in Berlin was Moroccan. It's just it's the nonsense that goes on um, that goes on at that organization. Oh, and in Austria, we have this. <sighs> Talk about the madness just deepens. In Austria, they're going to be issuing what's called a rape whistle to be issued New Year. Austrian police will distribute 6,000 pocket alarms on New Year's Eve to help prevent incidents like the mass sex assaults in neighboring Germany a year ago, the Interior Ministry said on Tuesday. It's a national campaign aimed primarily at at women on New Year's Eve. If activated, the free gadget will emit a shrill sound aimed at chasing away potential aggressors. Okay, so here's the scenario. You're in Austria, and you're downtown, and there's a New Year's Eve party going on. People are hooting and hollering and making all kinds of noise. And all of a sudden, a woman is attacked. She reaches into her pocket, and she presses this little button, and it makes a shrill sound. Can I ask you a silly question? Even if anybody heard it, do you think they'd stop and say, oh, my God, a woman's being raped. Let's go help. This is such backward thinking as it just defies description. The ministry earlier announced it would also beef up security at public events following the deadly attack at a Christmas market in Berlin on Monday evening. There's a common thread here, folks. The common thread is who's doing the attacking? Why are you trying to put a Band-Aid on this problem? Why will nobody say, look, we've taken in millions of refugees into Europe, most of them from countries who do not like you, do not want democracy, want to overthrow any democratic institution and install their own 7th century code called Sharia law. That's the problem. Now, look, I know this is an old caveat. I don't think for a second that every Muslim in the world is a terrorist. That's not what I'm saying. I am saying that this is an Islamic problem. And it needs to be dealt with. And if nobody else will deal with it, what else? But you just, sooner or later, you you can't just take a cup of water and pour it on a house fire, hoping that'll solve the problem. The fire very quickly gets beyond the ability of that cup to deal with. And if you don't stop and call the fire department... You're not going to have a house. So how is a rape whistle going to make one hill, one bit of beam, uh, one bit of difference in the middle of a crowded city on New Year's Eve in the middle of a great big party? 
Nobody's even going to hear the thing. This is not going to work. This is going to be another disaster. And again, the leadership of a lot of these European nations is simply in denial. They just cannot admit. They simply cannot admit that their policies have failed. This ever warmer, loving, huggy stuff that they continuously want to put out. Uh, you know, oh, it, it's like if these people are just misunderstood. It's like the old hug-a-thug mentality, right? Oh, he's a, yes, he did evil things, but that's because we just don't understand. It never occurs to any of these clowns. Maybe the guy's just evil. Maybe he's just downright a bad dude that doesn't care about anything or anyone else but himself. You know, that never crosses their mind. Oh, no, the obvious is never the answer. Like, you got a flat tire? No, the other three are fine. Yeah, but you got a flat tire? Ah, no, 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 that's not flat. It's just underinflated. I'm fine. Keep limping on down the rim, on the rim down the shoulder of the road. But you got a flat. No, I don't. I got three good tires. That's the kind of mentality you deal with. All right, we'll take a break. We'll come back with more right after this. Often hear about the supposed dangers of human-induced climate change, but what about the disastrous consequences of climate policy? For example, the closing of Ontario's coal stations was the single most important cause of the 318% rise in power rates since 2002. Thousands of industrial wind turbines are being erected across the province, killing birds and bats and ruining the lives of people living nearby. The expanded use of biofuels has led to 6.5% of the world's grain going to fuel instead of food. Only 6% of the $1 billion spent every day on climate finance goes to helping people today. The rest is dedicated to trying to stop climate change that may someday happen. Yet the reports of the non-governmental International Panel on Climate Change show that the science backing the climate scare is highly uncertain. Isn't it time we focused on problems we know to be real? This message is brought to you by ClimateScienceInternational.org.
right, we're entering into the home stretch of the show here, folks. Like I said earlier, uh, this will be my last show for this year. I won't be in next week just because I want to spend some time at home with the family on Wednesday. Um, and I look, I'm looking forward to that, of course, and I'm sure, I'm hoping they are too. <laughs> Maybe they look at it. You know, I never asked them that. Do you guys miss me when I'm gone? Anyway, um, so just to let you know that uh, next week I'll be taking the week off. So if you're looking to tune in, we will have uh, tonight's show and last week's show up for podcasting, uh, ready to go um, by noon tomorrow. So if you want to catch the interview with Jay Tysick we did earlier, it'll be available then, and last week's show will also be up. Now, uh, we have a regular contributor to my Facebook page called Bob, and Bob... I'm going to give him a doctorate of common sense because I just love the way he, he uh, puts things. Uh, and he shared with us another nugget. And thank God for Bob for bringing out this stuff. Uh, he, he, sent, he sent me this piece. It's called The Tax You Never Knew About. Now, and his stuff is always rock solid too, by the way. It's backed up. It's, you know, he really does a good job doing his homework and make sure his facts are all straight. Now, The tax you never knew about. I know it's hard to believe there's a tax you weren't aware of, but wait till you hear this. I'll share it with you. It's not all that long. Parker Gallant, the retired banker who kindly keeps watch on the various practices of the Ontario government with respect to electricity prices on behalf of the province's ratepayers, has discovered a tax embedded in electricity rates that 99% of Ontario residents do not know about. Somehow I'm not all that surprised to hear that. Actually, he called attention to an article by Paul Bliss of CTV on the water rental fee or fuel tax. This is a tax imposed by the government Ontario of Ontario over 15 years ago. So this started off under Ernie Eves' administration. So we can't lay the blame completely at the, at the uh, feet of the Liberals down in Queen's Park. We can lay a lot of it there, but we can't lay it all. Anyway, so... According to the Ontario Ministry of Finance, it is a water rental charge. Now, get this. Wait, okay, well, I'm going to stop interrupting myself. It is a water rental charge fixed at 9.5% of a hydro station's revenue for annual generation. You know another high word for hydro generation station? A hydroelectric dam. It's where they stop the river up, they run the current of the river through a turbine, and let it go downstream. Excuse me. That's what it is. In other words, it is a tax that the government of Ontario imposes on the hydroelectric, hydroelectric generation plants that supply electricity to the independent electricity system operator in Ontario for the water it uses to generate electricity. It is a hidden item in the electricity charge included in each ratepayer's electricity bill. How much does it cost taxpayers? Back in 2002, it was $116 million for 34.3 terawatt hours of electricity. That's a lot of power. I don't know how big a terawatt is, but I know it won't fit in the trunk of my Honda. All right, anyway. Uh, terawatts of electricity generated, or three or 0.34 cents per kilowatt hour. So that's what they had uh, put in place under Ernie Eves. It's a tax. I don't like it, but it's 0.34 cents per kilowatt. Okay. By 2015, the Liberal government had quietly raised the tax to $345 million for the generation. Wait a minute. For less power. 
Okay. Because in the first statement, it was 34.3 terawatts. Now they're generating 30.4 terawatts. That represented a tax to rate pairs of 1.14 cents. So they over double the cut, double the amount of tax they impose, and they cut the amount of power they're putting out. Go figure. Over the period of 2006 to 2015, Gallant found out the tax totaled 2.735 billion. Last year, it caused the average cost the average ratepayer about 70 bucks. Now you know when they use the word average, there's plenty of people above that number, and there's plenty of people under it. Average is just that. It's an average. It is not uncommon uncommon for governments at different levels to impose, tax, to impose taxes, charges, and fees on water use, mostly to reduce consumption or to impose a fee for pollution. In this case, however, no water is being consumed and no pollution is occurring. The government of Ontario is simply charging the electricity ratepayers for the use of the flowing publicly owned waters that are used to generate electricity. Okay, so you've got a river that's flowing that collectively all of us own, which also means none of us do. Okay, it belongs to the province. Or if it's a river like the Mackenzie or the St. Lawrence, belongs to the federal government. Okay, if it crosses it in a... In a Provincial boundaries. And they put a dam over it. Now, fair enough, the taxpayers got to pay to build the dam, right? That makes sense. I don't have a problem with that. Because the benefit is, once you build the dam, the hydro is free. At least I thought it was. Because the water's got to flow anyway. You're not changing the nature of the water in any way. All you're doing is running it through a turbine and using the natural hydraulic forces present in water, in moving water, to turn a turbine, which in turn is connected to a generator, which produces electrical power that we all use. Where is there an opportunity to tax that? Well, these guys have figured it out. So yes, it was a bad idea when the Tories brought it in 15 years ago, but the Liberals have made uh, just, you know, said, oh, look, we can inflate that a little bit. Let's get the tire pump out. Shh, 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 and shh, don't tell anybody. They'd be angry. You're darn right we'd be angry. You're darn right we'd be angry. Every reason to be angry. Because every time you turn around, these clowns find another way to reach into your pocket. $2.7 billion over the last 15... Think, okay... How many times in the most over the last year have you heard of a major accident on, let's say, from Iron Prior West on the 17, where the 417 goes down to four lanes, from four lanes back down to two? That is the Trans Canada Highway. Okay, it's a major piece of infrastructure. It carries literally hundreds of thousands of vehicles a day, tens of thousands of trucks travel on it and yet it's a cow path i know it's a cow path i drive it on a regular basis people die on that road all the time how many miles of highway would 2.7 billion dollars have paved and broadened out to four lanes like it's supposed to be like it should be we can say the same thing about the green energy act or e-health or the lrt olg scandal 
think if you really care about, because all you ever hear out of Queens Park is infrastructure, 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 infrastructure. It's the only thing they care about. And when they do put something on the Trans-Canada Highway, it's a bridge that can't handle the cold. Remember that last year? They built a bridge over, I think it was the Nipigon River, or the Nipissing. I'm not sure which one it was. But it's the only bridge over that river, and if that bridge is out, you got to go all the way down through the states, go around through, I think it's Wisconsin, back up into Manitoba to carry on going out west. It heaved by over a foot. They couldn't build a bridge that would withstand a Canadian winter. So even when they do try to do something with infrastructure, they still get it wrong. But you've got to ask yourself, does this ever end? Do these people never realize we are flat broke? As Jay put it, we're at the squeaky point where, you know, the squealing point. There just is no more cash. People are living on debt, on lines of credit, credit cards, all kinds of things. And they go along merrily spending like it's nobody's business. And it's just enough to make you weep because it doesn't seem to want to ever go away. So no matter how hard you look, no matter how hard you try, there's always something these guys find to screw up or find another way to rape your pocket. And just they just reach in there with a great big old scoop and take another health, healthy helping, even when you've got nothing left to give. When there's no more money in the bank, what are they going to do then? Oh, wait, they can dig through the floor because they're the government. They can just keep on spending and spending and spending and spending as if it never ends. All right, with that, we'll take a break. We'll come back with more right after this. For 17 years, I've been taking my cars to Irwin's Automotion. 17 years ago, Irwin was renting space on the corner of Bank and Heron. His encyclopedic knowledge of all things mechanical and his no-bull honesty has resulted in his second move. He now operates a huge facility on Cleopatra, eight bays, and an expert staff that operate all in the same wavelength. Honesty, integrity, try to save the customers some money and headaches. But fix it right the first time. Irwin's Automotion, 34, Cleopatra. Tell them Council sent you. That'll make them smile.
All right, in the final segment of the show here, I just I mentioned Kevin O'Leary earlier and the comment he made, and I realized I really should give you the whole quote so you can judge for your, yourself. In my mind, he's stricken himself from the potential leadership race with this quote. Uh, I'd be very interested. Uh, if you want to send me an email or give me a call, you can reach me at 343-700-4390, 844-562-4766. We've got about six minutes left, so if you want to squeak one in before the end of the show, by all means, go ahead or send me an email to lick, lick, nick at latenightcouncil.com, or you can even post something on Facebook if you'd like. All right, here's the quote that got him in the trouble, and in my mind, disqualifies him as a real potential candidate for Stephen. Excuse me, for Stephen Harper's old job. Here it is: Canadians are known as peacekeepers above all. There's nothing proud of being a warrior. War is a desperate outcome as a human being. Peacekeeping is extremely noble. What a load of crap. What an insult. There is a quote, and I don't know who said it. And I'm going to paraphrase it because I don't remember it exactly. But it goes something like this. The warrior fights not because he hates what's in front of him, but because he loves what's behind him. And I think that really sums up the warrior code. Every culture has a warrior culture within it. It has to, to survive. There's nothing wrong. As a matter of fact, it is one of the most noble trades to be willing to lay your life down on the line, lay your life on the line, to protect and defend that which you hold most dear is one of the greatest callings I think a human being can be called to. And for him to come out and make a comment like that is an insult to literally hundreds of thousands, millions of Canadians who have worn the uniform and at least 100,000 who died while wearing it, giving him the freedom to make this asinine comment. Let me just read it one more time so make sure you, you heard it correctly. Canadians are known as peacekeepers above all. There's nothing to be proud about being a warrior. War is a desperate outcome as a human being. I wonder, peacekeeping is, is extremely noble. I wonder how the people in Holland feel about the Canadian warriors. Or what about the people in France or Belgium? Maybe even some of the people in Afghanistan. What about the people in South Korea? Do you think those people think that there's nothing noble about being a warrior? How can somebody who seems to be so smart, say something so utterly stupid. That I just... So you decide for yourself if I'm right or wrong. But I just see this as a huge... not. And it's... You know what? I know a lot of people say, well, no wonder you were in the service. Yes, I was. Ten years. And I'm proud of that fact. But it's not... And I consider this an insult. No doubt about it. But it's about a lot more than just me. I'm thinking of my grandfather who went and fought in World War II and saw some of the heaviest fighting in Europe. I read a book, a series of books one time, and if you can find it, you really ought to read it. It's called, it starts out with, the first book is called Where the Hell Are the Guns? The Guns of Normandy and the Guns of Victory. I believe it's written by a guy called Gibbons. And he's what's called a forward observation officer. And what he does is he goes forward ahead of the artillery and finds a place to hide and he takes a pair of field glasses and a, t a radio phone or a field radio 
and he calls back to the artillery to correct the fall of the shot. So when they fire a, a, a piece of artillery, he sees where the round lands and, sa- and sends back co- uh, adjustments so they can tweak the gun and have the round land on the target. It's one of the, it was the most dangerous job in the Army. And when he wrote those books, he put you in his shoes. Everything happened to you. But while I was reading it, I came across, I remember when I was a young lad, and I'd ask my grandfather, you know, as every kid did of my era, Grandpa, what did you do in the war? And he said, oh, you know, I was, you know, yes, I was over there, but it was, I didn't do that much. Said, did you ever shoot anybody? Well, I shot one guy in the foot because he was escaping. All the other times I just shot over their head. I learned through this series of books because I encountered his unit, the Essex Scottish, a number of times. And through that, I could trace his steps through uh, Europe and what he did, who he fought, and what the outcome of the battle was. I know now he was lying through his teeth. Now, he did it thinking he was protecting me. But I'll tell you what. He paid a hell of a price. Now, he came back alive. But a lot of his buddies didn't. So for Mr. O'Leary... You can take that attitude and stick it. All right. Well, like I said before, this will be my last show for this particular year. Uh, I want to thank you all for for making it a successful year, for joining me on this new version of Nick at Night. And we'll see what the new year holds because who knows where we'll end up in 2017. Only God knows that. And it's time to celebrate his birthday. So I'm going to wish you all a very Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. And we'll see you all again next year. In the meantime, ubiquitous et amor, Deus est. Good evening, God bless. Don't let anything disturb your peace, and may you have a fair wind and a following sea. Of all the money that e'er I had, I spent it in good company. And all the harm I've ever done Alas, it was to none but me And all I've done for want of wit To memory now I can't recall So fill to me the parting glass Good night and joy be to you all. So fill to me the parting glass and drink a health whatever befalls. Then gently rise and softly call. Good night and joy be to you all. Of all the comrades that it I had, they're sorry for my going away. And all the sweethearts that e'er I had, they'd wish me one more day to stay. Since it fell into my lot That I should rise and you should not I'll gently rise and softly call Good night and joy be to you all
Oh, <laughs> 